Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. For this week's interview, Beverly Finlay Kaneko is just back from Japan and provides another nuclear hot seat exclusive on the ground report as to what's happening to the people of Fukushima. Take a listen to the moving human story behind the headlines and learn how you can support Japan's nuclear refugees. Plus, numbnuts of the week, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission duck and cover report, and of course, the Radcast radiation weather report with Mimi German. All this and more in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, January 21st, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Well, if you bothered to read page 399 of the six-inch thick budget bill that Congress passed on January 15th, you would see that the Department of Energy is receiving an extra $155 million worth of financing to promote its nuclear projects. Blame Senator Lamar Alexander, a Republican of Tennessee, supported by good old boy nuclear lobbyists, for bringing in this pork for two nuclear reactors to be built in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Strangely enough, only 30 minutes from the senator's hometown. Babcock and Wilcox, the company that built Three Mile Island, and New Scale Power are set to receive as much as $605 million in federal cost-sharing grants to help them build a new type of reactor that is smaller and cuter and considered safer than the traditional design, which means that they acknowledge the fact that their current design isn't particularly safe. Taxpayers for Common Sense a Washington group that searches federal budgets for wasteful spending, targeted the reactor program last year, saying that private companies should spend their own money to determine if the technology can prove commercially viable. But no! $605 million going to promote the nukes. Your tax dollars at work. This story is pure numbnuts, but it's too serious to get the jingle. On January 15th, the Air Force said that 34 officers responsible for launching the nation's nuclear missiles had been suspended and their security clearances revoked for cheating on their monthly proficiency exams. Eleven officers have also been implicated in an investigation into illegal drugs, three of them at nuclear command sites in North Dakota and Montana. General Mark A. Welsh III, the Air Force Chief of Staff, insisted that the country's nuclear arsenal remained safe. Welsh said, This is not about the compromise of nuclear weapons. No, General Welsh, it's about the compromise of the Air Force officers whose fingers are on the buttons of the nuclear weapons. 
last month, an Air Force inquiry revealed that Major General Michael J. Carey, who oversaw some of the nation's nuclear weapons, was dismissed for drunken antics during an official trip to Moscow last summer. And the Navy demoted Vice Admiral Tim Giardina, Deputy Commander of all U.S. nuclear forces, for reportedly using, quote, a significant monetary amount, end quote, of counterfeit gambling chips at an Iowa casino. Why worry about terrorists when these are the guys protecting us? Time for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission duck <laughs> and cover report. Fire broke out at Duke Energy's Harris Nuclear Power Plant in Raleigh, North Carolina on January 18th. The emergency lasted for over five hours and was declared an alert, the second in increasing severity of four nuclear emergency classifications. The reactor was previously taken offline in May when an inspection revealed early signs of corrosion in the reactor's vessel. It just went back online last month. Where is three strikes you're out when you need it? At Catawba Nuclear Station in York County, South Carolina, water with traces of tritium, a radioactive hydrogen isotope, has again leaked. It happened in May of last year when a fiberglass discharge pipe leaked and resulted in a spill of more than 100 gallons of radioactive water. Tritium was also detected on Monday, January 20th, at Perry Nuclear Power Plant in Ohio. Radioactive tritium was also found at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant in a newly installed groundwater monitoring well. The NRC said that additional monitoring will be necessary. Oh, good luck, Pilgrim. And that's this week's duck and cover report. <laughs> Bad nuclear news for St. Louis. After World War II, Malincrote Company generated nuclear waste, which was dumped in Coldwater Creek in North St. Louis County, contaminating the creek and surrounding areas. Reported health problems included 1,242 cases of cancer and 320 cases of autoimmune disorders, which can be caused by exposure to radiation. Among the cancers were 95 cases of brain cancer, 59 cases of thyroid cancer, and 39 cases of appendix cancer. Appendix cancer. In 2013, the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services conducted a study of six zip codes near the creek, but blamed higher rates of some cancers on lifestyle factors like smoking and unhealthy eating habits. If that's what's causing appendix cancer, the whole country should be coming down with it. Ah, but Grasshopper, the study used data from 1996 to 2004, after most of the radiation contamination had been cleaned up. Many of the people who were part of the study didn't live there at the time of the radioactive contamination, while many who lived and played near contaminated sites have since moved away, this according to citizens' groups. The state's report recommended increasing cancer prevention and health promotion efforts. Stop smoking, clean up your eating habits, and clean up your room! A trio of stories about Alaska salmon. The fisherman-owned Loki Fish Company paid for radiation testing on seven stocks of wild salmon in response to customer concerns over radiation releases in the Pacific Ocean from Fukushima. The FDA contends that there is no evidence 
that radionuclides from Fukushima are present in Alaskan and Pacific Northwest seafood at a level that would be harmful to human health. And of course there's no evidence because they never took any data. Of the seven samples that Loki tested, two registered cesium-137 and cesium-134. That's Fukushima radiation showing up in Alaska salmon, folks. Which leads us to... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. The U.S. Department of Agriculture will purchase $20 million in canned Alaska pink salmon for nationwide distribution to food banks. According to Senator Lisa Murkowski, Republican from Alaska, every Alaskan knows that our salmon is brain food and full protein. So I suggested the Department of Agriculture consider our nutritious and delicious salmon for food banks nationwide experiencing a high level of need. Murkowski spokesmodel Matthew Felling said, We have the USDA on the phone last week, and we're like, We have a big surplus of pink salmon up here in Alaska. Right. Because no one who knows anything about Fukushima and the radiation risks in the fish is buying your Alaska salmon. So in other words, if you are hungry and needy in the United States and you go to a food bank, you're volunteering to be nuclear cannon fodder. And that's why you, Senator Lisa Murkowski, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture are this week's None That's Out of Week. And one final salmon story. A Santa Barbara chef has taken North Pacific seafood, including salmon, off the menu. Robert Perez, head chef at Seagrass in Santa Barbara, stopped using Japanese seafood two years ago. Around a year ago, he took Hawaiian fish off the menu and now all seafood from San Diego to Alaska is gone. Perez said, The way things are heading, we just feel strongly that it is not safe, and I'm not going to consume the fish, and I'm definitely not going to provide it to my guests. I just can't do that with a clear conscience. Would someone please give Chef Robert Perez his own show on the Food Channel? Now... Over to Japan for an update on Fukushima. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education says there is a gamma ray haze over the plant. Gamma rays are like x-rays. Essentially, the entire plant has a gamma ray haze over it to the tune of about 1,000 millirem a year. Last week, it was discovered that radiation continues to jump at Fukushima and is now almost 1,000% over previous levels. Jay Cullen, who is an associate professor at the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria in Canada, says that Fukushima has released something on the order of 80 quadrillion becquerels of cesium-137. By way of comparison, Chernobyl is estimated at 70 quadrillion. So, Fukushima, you're the champ and you're still in the running for more. TEPCO officials have finally gone on record as saying water leaks inside the number three reactor building likely came from cracks in the containment vessel. You think? Scientific American was hedging its wording when it said if the melted nuclear fuel at Fukushima Daiichi proves bad enough, how bad does it have to get? But if it is bad enough, it will have to be entombed for a number of years rather than removed 
because of radiation risk from what is essentially a cooled shell of ceramic armor surrounding a highly radioactive core that remains hot and is still undergoing radioactive decay. Bottom line, until Fukushima has a sarcophagus entombing it or all the nuclear fuel has been carried away, don't hold your breath on that one, expect periodic reports of steam for years to come. Professor Chris Busby, Scientific Secretary of the European Committee on Radiation Risk and so much more, says it much more succinctly. Frankly, he said, I think there's nothing much they can do now. The genie is out of the bottle. And for those who still want to say that Fukushima is the worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl, back to Arnie Gunderson, who says, what makes Fukushima different is that Chernobyl and Three Mile Island were essentially stopped in less than a year. We're at three years with Fukushima, and there's no end in sight. The reason is that the nuclear core is in contact with the groundwater, and that's bad, and it's going to be bad for years to come. So what's happening to the workers at Fukushima? Kenji Higuchi, who produced nuclear Ginza for Channel 4 in the UK back in 1995, said, I'll never forget what it was like, the heat and the darkness, meaning at Fukushima Daiichi. Workers stripped naked, soaked in sweat. They stood in an oxygen tent, gasping for air. Kunio Murai, a nuclear worker at Fukushima, said, My teeth started breaking off, bit by bit. I don't have any upper teeth now. Photographer Higuchi jumped in. I have met people who have bled from the gums, ears, nose, who have been violently sick and suffer from diarrhea immediately after being exposed. They suffer from profound lethargy. It is as if they are the living dead. Only from the outside, they look normal. There's damage to the testes and to the eyes. Chronic anemia, tumors of the skin, thyroid, bone, larynx, pharynx, and lung. Loss of teeth and hair. Low immunity to infection. Accelerated aging, depression, and anxiety. An anonymous Fukushima worker known only as Tanaka said, My job was to help workers remove their gear when they came back from dealing with contaminated water and debris and to check them with a Geiger counter for contamination. We used to wear charcoal filters, but because of the cost cuts, we got dust filters, like those you'd buy at a convenience store. TEPCO employees wore charcoal filters at all locations. TEPCO is God, the main contractors are kings, and we are slaves. This from the workers to whom we are entrusting the future of the planet. When Democracy Now! was on location in Japan last week, they interviewed Yukiko Kameya, who is a Fukushima nuclear refugee. She said, There are many young people between 15 and 19 in Fukushima who are in high school who have died suddenly. This morning I saw an online story that a 17-year-old died from leukemia. In the morning when his mother came to wake him up, he was found dead in his bed. Everyone says this was caused by the radiation levels from the nuclear accident, but our government never recognized it. And there are 59 children with thyroid cancer. They'll never recognize it as being caused by the radiation. We'll have more on the personal human side of what's happening at Fukushima during today's interview. As for the politics, more on a story that we covered last week. United States Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz 
has requested that Japan join a treaty called the Convention on Supplementary Compensation for Nuclear Damages. The treaty collects funds from participating nations to assist with payments for damages resulting from nuclear disasters. In other words, they know there will be more of them. They're just trying to put together a little bit of money beforehand.、Mm-hmm. But the treaty assigns accident liability to the operators of the nuclear power plant rather than the vendors which develop the technology or construct the equipment. In order for a country to receive help, in order for Japan to receive help, The United States essentially told them that they would have to incur the losses and sign a treaty which would prevent them from seeking compensation from contracted companies, like those which built and constructed Fukushima Daiichi, meaning, among others, General Electric. Instead, the country and the people affected must be satisfied with seeking repayment from the operator, TEPCO, which is facing bankruptcy. And relies largely upon the Japanese government for funds to prevent a financial meltdown. In the words of the treaty, the operator's liability for nuclear damage shall be absolute and the right to compensation for nuclear damage may be exercised only against the operator liable. In other words, the U.S. has Japan by the short and curlies. But hey, all is not lost. The Japan U.S. Friendship Commission is offering leading contemporary and traditional artists from the United States the opportunity to spend three months in Japan through the U.S. Japan Creative Artists Program. They will accept applications in all disciplines, including but not limited to architecture or design, choreography, music composition, filmmaking, media art, folk traditional art, playwright theater art, visual art, writing, Multidisciplinary and other disciplines. I wonder if they'd send a grant for nuclear hot seat. And I wonder what it would be like to record this program through a gas mask. Just for kicks, we'll have a link to this one up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 135. Here's a new feature, the bad guy report. Just to keep you up on what's happening on the other side. In India, the foundation stone of the Gorakhpur nuclear power plant in Haryana state has been laid by Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. The first two units of the plant are both scheduled to begin operating by 2021, but not if Kumar Sundaram and the massive Indian anti nuclear movement has anything to say about it, and they will have a lot to say about it. We'll have a link to the campaign that Kumar is running, and all of us can participate up on the website. Attention Swedish anti-nuclear activists, and Aiden, you know who you are. Vattenfall has officially started a decade-long public consultation into new nuclear build, which it expects to be necessary after current reactors retire. The consultation centers on Vattenfall's two oldest units at the Ringalls nuclear power plant, which have operated since the mid-1970s and are expected to close in the second half of the 2020s. Let's see if that shutdown can happen any sooner with no replacement planned. Toshiba is working with GDF Suez for development of a nuclear program in the UK. The Hungarian government has signed an agreement with Russia's Rosatom to build two nuclear reactors at Pox, with Russia providing 80% of the finance. Wouldn't that make it a Russian-owned reactor on Hungarian soil? 
And Germany closed its nuclear power plants almost immediately after the March 11, 2011 nuclear disaster at Fukushima began. But now the German courts have upheld the illegality of one of the plant closures, Biblis Reactors A and B, because the operator's RWE had not been consulted and this constituted a substantial procedural error. Just to let you know some of the places where we still have battles in which to engage. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your donations to keep going, growing, and improving. If you have come to rely on the news, interviews, numbnuts of the week, NRC duck and cover report, plus my whacked out sense of humor, help me keep bringing all of this to you. There's a big red donate button on the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com and I would so appreciate it if you could use it. No amount of money is too little, and whatever you can do to help, I'm grateful. Now for this week's interview. Beverly Finlay Kaneko is a journalist and educator who used to live in Japan, but relocated to Southern California after Fukushima. She works creating bridges of understanding between the two countries to raise awareness about Fukushima and help the children affected by the ongoing nuclear disaster. We speak every time she gets back from Japan. Here's her latest report. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. You were recently in Japan, and you were there when the Internet went nuts with exaggerated stories about Fukushima melting down, exploding again. This was something I covered two weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat number 133, which I called The Sky is Not Falling. How was this exaggerated information received in Japan? From our point of view, the stories were a non-issue in Japan. We follow the Tokyo Shimbun, and my husband is pretty obsessive about keeping up with things on both sides of the Pacific. And we hadn't heard anything in Japan, and I was quite surprised when people started posting stories. I actually got a hysterical email from somebody who I thought was knowledgeable about things. And um, then a professor friend posted the story and asked for something to corroborate it with. That's what happened. And what was your response when this person asked for corroboration and when you kept hearing the stories? Okay, well, I got out of bed and we immediately... <laughs> We immediately went through a three-pronged check, and that put our minds at ease. Uh, the first thing we did is we checked the web, uh, TEPCO website. And I know people will say, TEPCO, you know, that's the enemy. But if you look at their figures as a stretch of data for patterns, it's useful. You know, I realize that uh, some of their monitors are, are, you know, set in flattering positions for them. But if you look at it for, you know, this uh, stretch of data, it can be useful. There were no spikes in radiation. Um, there were slight increases, and that's usually uh, in an indication of when it has rained. We also checked our citizens' monitoring post in Kanagawa. That's the prefecture where Yokohama is. And we checked with our own Geiger counters. We have two of them outside in the garden. It registered 0.05, which is actually lower than our garden here in Huntington Beach, California, which is 
Um, so the main thing in this kind of case, you need to look for trends and unusual spikes. And there was nothing like that. So we realized that, you know, nothing was going on. You mentioned the radiation testing site. What are people in Japan doing to test for radiation in food, air, water? What are they doing to protect themselves, especially when it comes to the food? Well, the people who are concerned about this have a lot of different places to check. So these are some of the things that we do. For food, our first foray into monitoring was through Greenpeace. And Yuji was involved in collecting fish from local markets to submit to Greenpeace for scientific testing and data collection. Greenpeace has continued sampling since the early days, and you can look at their website and check for up-to-date information in Japanese. We've also used the Citizens Radioactivity Measuring Station in Yokohama. Yuji has actually gone there, visited them. He's taken some items in to be tested. And they also have a website where they list everything that they've tested. We also do some of our shopping at our local Seikyo Co-op. And uh, you can see many items are labeled there that they've been tested for radiation. I was really surprised on this last visit that on the shelves they have a little sticker saying has been tested for radiation. And you can go onto their website and you can check the data for those items on their website. We also refer to some books. One is called the Radioactive Contamination in Food Series, and the other is called Recognizing Food Products Without Radioactive Contamination. And the other book we look at is actually from a blog that's called OK Food. And one of the things that I found useful in that book is a listing of many uh, food corporations' policies on radiation testing. One thing that Yuji and I want to stress is that the books, the websites, everything are only tools in your arsenal of becoming an, an informed consumer in this radioactive world. And you really need to always be seeking new information and educating yourself, and you have to be responsible for your own decisions. This is not an era for complacency, just as it is not an era for uninformed hysterical behavior. Your husband, Yuji, traveled to Iwake, only 27 miles from Fukushima Daiichi. Who are the people who are still living there, and what kind of testing is going on to determine the safety of the environment? Iwake is a place in Fukushima Prefecture where people are still living. People have evacuated to there. People have come back to there from where they have evacuated further out into the country. So there, it's a place where Fukushima residents are living now. You might remember from last summer, there was the big announcement that they opened the beaches in Iwaki because they weren't contaminated. But actually, this uh, Tarachine Citizens Radiation Monitoring Center tested the sand and the ocean water there and found that the farther you dig down into the sand, there is radioactive contamination. I'm just sitting here and shaking my head. It's so sad. Yeah. 
What kind of testing is being done by this monitoring center? This is the Tarachine Citizens Radiation Monitoring Center, and it is funded in part by Days Japan Photojournalism Magazine. That magazine has done a lot of fundraising and has gone out around the country and provided radiation monitoring equipment. They also fund the Kumino Sato Beach Camp down in Okinawa for Fukushima kids. So at Tarachine, they do a lot of different things. Along with food, they also provide independent soil sampling. They provide thyroid testing for children and I think for adults too. They also provide whole body counter tests. And when Yuji was there, he asked if they're finding trends similar to what the Fukushima Medical University has revealed. But Tarachine is very protective of the data. They don't want to publish any results until they have enough data and a meaningful time span to establish a proper epidemiological study. Also, of course, there's the issue of patient privacy. They feel that publishing standalone statistics can cause misunderstandings, and the environment is changing. Uh, it's an environment in flux, and that has an effect. So they are really biding their time, and they're helping patients on a case-by-case basis because the most important thing is to provide people with a sense of peace about their health situation and about what's going on with their children especially. During your trip, you again met with Mr. Shinshu Hida, who is a photographer who's been documenting the relief efforts in Fukushima. Tell us about his work. Mr. Hida accompanied Setsuko Kida here in November to provide support for the sailors on the Ronald Reagan who are filing suit against TEPCO. He started his career by taking pictures of craftsmen. He was recognized by the Asahi Shimbun, and he's published a couple books of these photographs of Japanese craftsmen. After 3-11, he began to help with relief efforts up in Tohoku. Of course, he's a photographer. He was taking pictures, and it was a really hard time for him. He was sad, and he was angry, and always very upset, and he knew he had to communicate what was going on in the world. So since then, he's been on photography missions into the hot zone eight times now. And he exhibits all over Japan. His manager tries to save money by booking him into community centers, which is actually a good thing because many government employees get the chance to see his work. And he gets a good mainstream audience. I heard that he might be exhibiting sometime soon at the Tokyo City Hall. It must be dangerous for him to be in the hot zone and exposed to all of that radiation. I suppose so. He's encountered readings as high as 40 to 60 microsieverts per hour, which is really high. He's an older gentleman. They say that older people, you know, it's a horrible thing to say, but this fan before they're going to get cancer or something is far enough into the future that they would probably meet their demise before 
radiation affects them. So I, I think he's, he's more concerned about getting the word out than his own health. What kind of images has Mr. Hida been documenting? He just goes through the zone and really there are no people there. So he has a few pictures of people, but generally on his visits, he sees no people. Um, he takes pictures of houses that are slowly deteriorating from untended earthquake damage and being empty. He takes pictures of tsunami damage. He takes pictures of wildlife. He's basically documenting what the zone looks like now. He's, he's being very careful in his documentation of these ghost towns and he's trying to track the changes in the environment. He hopes to build a catalog of year-to-year comparisons of what the zone looks like. He t- talks about these inobuta, which are hybrids between pigs and wild boars, and they can get quite defensive of their young. They've been multiplying rapidly it's completely unchecked by any hunters. Hunters used to go and hunt the wild boars, and now there's nobody there hunting, So, and they've um, crossbred with the domestic pigs in the area. And so they go around and get into the houses and tear things up. And you know, These are places where the government is thinking of sending people back to live. So but I think that even if they can get their fantasy of decontaminating a place that you go back to your house and one of these wild pig boars has been in there and torn the place up. And who's going to pay for that? He told us about being almost attacked by a flock of crows, just like in a Hitchcock movie. So it's quite a scary situation out there, not just because of the radiation, but just the the desolation of the place. Mr. Shinsuhita does have a website and a book for sale. The website is Hida, H-I-D-A dash Fukushima dot com. And we will have links up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog under episode number 135. I'd like to shift this thought because your husband, Yuji, also traveled to the town of Tomioka, which is only seven kilometers, meaning about five miles from Fukushima Daiichi. Tell us what TEPCO and the Japanese government have been doing there to try and convince us that they are going to be able to decontaminate the site. So his visit to Tomioka was part of his trip with Setsuko Kida, who you interviewed in November and Shinshu Hida, the man I just, the photographer I just spoke about. At present, nobody is living there. However, decontamination started on January 4th in residential neighborhoods. It had been a no-go zone, but last year in the spring, the town was split into three classifications. The first classification would be no plan at present for repatriation, and that is above 50 millisieverts per year. And the second is it's okay to visit, but you can't spend the night, 
and it's okay to enter for work. There is a 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. curfew. You must wear a mask and protective covering. However, there are no checks on how you've protected yourself when you enter this area. And that would be an area that is from 20 to 50 millisievert dose per year. And finally, according to government standards, the level for it being okay to return to one of these areas is 0.23 microsieverts per hour. And this would combine time spent indoors with time spent outdoors. Setsuko Kita's house is in category number two. In other words, it's okay for her to visit. She can't spend the night, and she has to wear protective clothing while she's there. Right. So they were able to go in and visit. We do have some photos that were taken on that trip, and one in particular that I'm hoping to post on Nuclear Hot Seat is of Setsuko Kida in her kitchen, and it broke my heart to see what she had to do, how she had to cover herself just to be able to be in her own home. Yeah, Yuji's worst thought from the whole time, the thing he told me when he got back, he said the worst thing for him was having to step up into her house wearing his shoes. You know Japanese people remove their shoes before going indoors. So it's the ultimate insult to step up into somebody's home wearing your shoes. And he said he found it very difficult for him to do that. And it almost brings me to tears to have to tell you that right now. It's very sad. Tell us some of the problems UG found with the decontamination process. According to the law, 0.2 microsieverts per hour is the reading where the government says that it would be okay to return and live in the environment. So slightly higher than what we have here in Huntington Beach, California. And the government, to try and achieve this, they're first cleaning the tsunami debris. They're trying to prepare the infrastructure, like the train line and the roads. They're trying to decontaminate. Unfortunately, decontamination is a fantasy it's impossible. It's a waste of tax revenue. It causes undue radioactive exposure to the workers. And, you know, we've all read the stories about how everything is subcontracted out. And, you know, they're even bringing homeless people off the street. It's, it's a horrible situation. It creates a bone of contention between neighbors. Some neighborhoods, as I explained, there are the different levels the three different classifications. So some neighborhoods might fall under one classification and some under another. Some people might receive more. Some people might receive less compensation depending on how contaminated their home is. One example I can tell you about Kida-san is she's been having trouble with remarks from people in temporary housing that she's gone to visit where they say, well, you're lucky because you received compensation and her husband actually works outside the prefecture and he has an apartment there. 
And she was able to move in with her husband who was living and working outside the prefecture. She's a little bit different than people who were carted off to these evacuation centers and are still living in temporary housing. And they've made some nasty remarks to her. But, you know, the thing is, she received compensation. But there's another picture that shows Kidasan at her front door where she's written, actually, actually written graffiti on her front door and accounting in black marker. And it says, this house cost me $320,000 21 years ago. TEPCO paid me $90,000. And I still owe $70,000 on my own. And she leaves a special note for politicians. Before you say anything, try living here for a while. Radiation levels inside of her home are over one microsievert per hour. This is downstairs, indoors, usually upstairs readings are higher. So it's a very high level for it to be indoors. This is so sad. What are some of the other problems that are taking place with the attempt at decontamination? First, there's nowhere to put any of the decontamination debris. There's not even a temporary place. There were bags in front of Kita-san's house, or excuse me, in front of her neighbor's house. There are bags piled three high, and they cover great massive areas. There are pictures that Yuji has uh, where they're stacked in schoolyards. Decontamination also causes another layer of secondary contamination through sloppy processes, the incineration of radioactive debris. For example, the bags next door to Kita-san's house were marked clearly for incineration and no incineration. How do they decide which things are okay to burn and which they are not? There is a big issue, and it's a very concerning issue, of these quote-unquote secret new incinerator projects where they're taking this debris to small villages and to these newly built small incinerators that fly under the radar, that fly under the law. And one of the places that has been in the news is a place called Samegawa. And that is a whole nother can of worms. We have issues of the disposal of the highly radioactive ash, the reprocessing of radioactive ash, things like the export of contaminated wood products into wood chips. There was a recent story about wood chips being dumped into Lake Biwa, which is down by Osaka. Where did that come from? So there are a lot of issues like that. Basically, in Tomioka, Yuji found that in a perfect world, decontamination might be a good idea, but in a highly contaminated, uneven place like Tomioka, it would really be better to give up and provide closure to citizens and let them get on with their lives. The residents have been evacuated from their homes for almost three years now. What are they demanding before they return? According to a recent survey, for residents to return, 
they demand that radiation levels are lowered to one millisievert per year dosage, and that was 65% of the people were hoping for that. The second thing they need is lifeline infrastructure, such as electricity, water, and gas. Number three, they are asking for adequate compensation from TEPCO and the government. They have to fix their homes. They have to reestablish businesses. They need to find jobs. Number four, they need services such as medical. A lot of doctors and nurses have moved out of the area, so it would it would require calling those kinds of professionals back into the area. And finally, they want to have their homes repaired before they return. And we talked earlier about the pig wild boar hybrids that are going around ravaging the homes. In fact, Kita-san's own home outdoors, there has been a lot of evidence of these animals destroying the property. Sounds like a pipe dream to me, given TEPCO and the government. Moving further into this survey, what were the top concerns that the residents voiced? The first one is when will the negotiations with TEPCO end? It's a never-ending process. Number two, obtaining the permission to decontaminate property of residents who choose not to return. So what happens if you move back to your house and clean it all up, but the next-door neighbor has abandoned their home but also won't give you permission or won't proceed with decontamination and who's going to pay for that. The third thing is we talked before about no temporary or interim storage for decontamination debris. The fourth is even if decontamination proceeds, there may be people who don't return if the targeted level is not reached. Finally, Dividing the town into three classifications means the town will never be the same because some parts of the town obviously are not going to be able to return ever. Can they rebuild the town to even be like it was before? I think that's pretty much a rhetorical question by now given the circumstances you just spelled out. This kind of forced, drawn-out evacuation is tremendously stressful on the people who have been forced to move out. What has been the psychological impact on the evacuees? Well, there are several types of people. For example, there's type A. They're the ones who think that they will probably never be able to return, and they've also decided that they never want to go back. The second type would be those who hold out hope of returning and that they want to return. Another type are those who don't think they can return, but they want to anyway. Really, the type that has the most post-traumatic stress disorder would be type A, and Setsuko Kida is a type A. I can't say that I blame her. When I was at Three Mile Island, I had a much less stressful situation, though it was pretty bad, and it ended up throwing me into post-traumatic stress that is probably part of what drives me to do nuclear hot seat. It is not something that goes away easily or by itself. Right. 
Now, Beverly, you have been very active working with the people left back in Japan and forging communication links between Japan and the United States. You do have an NPO, Families for Safe Energy. Could you tell us what's coming up this spring so that we can be aware of it and do what we can to support it? Our first event that we're hoping will get off the ground this spring is bringing award-winning director Ian Thomas Ash, whose film A2BC is about the health issues faced by Fukushima children and the government's futile decontamination efforts back to the West Coast. His film has been selected for 19 festivals, and he's been given two top awards. He was here in October, and we had him on a university-speaking tour in the Los Angeles, Orange County area. He was at UC Irvine. He was at Chapman University, and he was at Pomona College, and he was extremely well-received. I'm working right now with activists and community groups from San Diego all the way up to the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver to try and schedule events. The film is heart-wrenching. He's a great speaker, and I'm looking for anybody who is willing to help out, and I need people who in their own areas can take leadership get some screenings that will help support him to work on his next film. He's still traveling up into Fukushima and meeting with families. Ian is coming at the end of March, beginning of April. The second event is from around April 26th through May 10th. We will be hosting Sensuke Shishido, He is a former elementary school principal from Fukushima. He spent his final year on the job in the wake of the triple meltdowns. And since retirement, he's been working with the Asian Education and Friendship Association, building schools and fostering international friendship in Vietnam and Laos. He speaks about the strains of the disaster on children. He talks about his own experiences as an educator responsible for a school during the crisis and also his efforts to campaign for official government funding of traveling classroom experiences for Fukushima kids. He has a slideshow. He also talks about his family and his family's different reactions to the disaster. His daughter has been extremely involved in trying to get government assistance and government recognition for the victim's compensation law, which has really, by the Abe government, has been completely ignored. I'm really looking to have Mr. Shishido connect with community groups, schools, He's going to be speaking with the retired principals of Orange County. He can tailor his talk to activist groups, or he can tailor it to reach people who may or may not know very much about the situation. So I believe he's an excellent speaker for that reason. 
for listeners who wish to learn more and support the important work that you are doing, where can they go and how can they get in contact with you? Right now we have our Facebook page, which is under Families for Safe Energy. You can contact me with a message through that Facebook page. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, you're doing such crucial work and helping so tremendously. I always appreciate your on-the-ground reports, and thank you again for being our guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, Libby, and I want to say that you are doing great work, too, and I always appreciate your sense of humor. It's one of the only things that gets me through. Beverly Findlay Kaneko. You'll find some of her husband Yuji Kaneko's photos and all the links she mentioned in her report up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 135. Activist shout-outs. Michael Marriott, former executive director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NIRS, and now its current president, is writing a blog filled with terrific information. You've got to check it out. He's at safeenergy.org. Oh, John, Mr. Stewart, you need to cover nuclear issues on The Daily Show. You know, I can show you where the jokes are. I can research, write, collaborate with your writers, even deliver it on air. You've got a budget. I've got some time. Let's give it a shot. Send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. I promise I'll get back to you. And now, here's Radcast. This is Mimi Gurman for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. You can now look for yourselves on the history of the Radcast Reports on our website to see back data on many sites. Today is Tuesday, January 21st, 2014. Remember, the Radcast alert is set at 100 counts per minute. In the latest Radcast report, we see many areas across the United States moving into slightly higher averages with definitively higher peaks. Frederick, Wisconsin is on average 48 with a high of 75, Asheville, North Carolina peaking at 86, and Taylor, South Carolina peaking at 70. Remember, these are not averages. These are the peaks. The Northeast, while in the same average zone, is experiencing more peaks in the 70s and 80s right now, if not higher, more so than we've seen consistently in the past. Chicopee, Mass., 4371. Baldwinsville, New York, 36.68. Robbinsville, New Jersey, 45.190. We aren't sure why exactly New Jersey hit 190 CPM, but isn't it interesting that we are able to see this because we have our meters? Oftentimes, the high peaks like these are anomalies, though sometimes we do see a correlation to a nuclear event in that particular area. We know that there was a fire down at the Harris Nuclear Power Plant in South Carolina on Saturday, and the Pilgrim in Massachusetts leaks a lot, but we don't have solid info on why these numbers are as they are. Philadelphia, PA, 4476. Hellertown, PA, 5278. We also know that Shreveport, Louisiana, saw very high peaks at 147 yesterday while they're averaging still low on their own current norm in the 30s. 
Perhaps if the NRC did its job better and actually oversaw the monitoring process, we would know more. But there is no oversight and none in sight for the future either for both nuclear power plants and for the nuclear waste dumps. Back to the RADCAST report for today. A great part of the Southwest is consumed right now with higher readings. Why? Well, we have nuclear sites in Idaho, which have waste from Colorado's nuclear dump, Rocky Flats. Now Idaho is digging up plutonium soil and wanting to ship it to Hanford. That's going to cause higher radiation readings. Spearfish, South Dakota, average 48, peak 109. Craig, Montana, average 42, high of 70. Layton, Utah, 45, high of 74. Lakewood, Colorado, 64.99. Colorado Springs, Colorado, 60.99. Chino Valley, Arizona, 53.82, while Tucson is at 50, peaking at 154. Henderson, Nevada is 47.66. Paso Robles in California, 42.70. And San Leandro, California, winning in California at 45 with a peak of 129. On the new RADCAST site, we will be showing you the daily reports of events of nuclear power plants across the United States. You will be amazed at the deadly mess you are living in. RADCAST is here to present the data. Again, it is the NRC's job, along with the EPA, to monitor for health of all United States citizens. But who is taking charge? You, the citizens of the United States who are armed with meters and knowledge. Thank you for listening to the RADCAST report on the nuclear hot seat. This is Mimi German for RADCAST.org. Thank you, Mimi. Here's today's final thought. My ebook is nanos away from being posted on Kindle. It's my very personal nuclear reaction, one mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and beyond. Once I have that out of the way, I'm thinking of taking a road trip up the West Coast sometime this year to meet with activists, do public talks and readings to promote my book, but also the information that's in it. You can book me for speeches, storytelling, poetry events, bookstore readings, public talks, media, Q&As, networking, and brainstorming with activists. If you are involved in the anti-nuclear movement on the west coast of North America and would like to be part of my Connect the Dots trip up to Washington State and back down again to California, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com and let's see what kind of kick-ass itinerary we can set up. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 21st, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, commondreams.org, New York Times, KRAL-TV, AP, thestate.com, beyondnuclear.org, Oregon Public Broadcasting, KYET.com, KTUU.com, KION-TV, Military Times, Navy Times, NHK, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds.org, KALW Radio, Power Hour, New Zealand Herald, Living on Earth, Scientific America, Algeria, Al Jazeera America, Channel 4 UK, Democracy Now, Informable.com, and Lucas Hickson, the Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission, JamaicaGleaner.com, The Province, TEPCO, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Community. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY-TV. Our archive is available on iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. All comments welcome, as long as you keep them civil. 
Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Copyright 2014, all rights reserved, but fair use allowed. Just use proper attribution, website, and email. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that, yes, San Onofre is still shut down forever. We did it, so can you. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.